0: Father, well, then we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at these verses together. Father, well, we don't simply want a better
1: understanding of them, but we pray by your Spirit you would speak to us and you would help us uh, to obey. In Jesus' name. Mm. And I take it, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you're getting a bit more confident as to how judges work. So you kind of know the cycle now, as Andrew was and telling us. There's the forgetting and then. And the rebellion and the uh, turning away from the Lord and then they cry out to him and then he sends a rescuer and then we repeat and we repeat and we repeat and it gets a bit boring so um, today I'm going to do something a bit different and I'd like you to imagine with me if you, if you were you were a red kite um not the toy but the bird and there you are scanning the land from up high hovering making those noises looking for food using your tail to steer and every once in a while, you zoom down and you see something that looks good, looks tasty, looks important. So we are going to hover up high over these verses, and just three times we will zoom in on three little episodes to pick up three, I think, really important points um, for people like us at a time like this. And Which means deliberately we aren't going to cover everything, um, but my prayer this week has been that what we do cover actually be really nourishing and really helpful for us, and the God will speak. We were made for worship, and when we turn our backs on God and we think we're free, it's not that we worship nothing, it's that we run after all kinds of other things. So with God out of the picture, it's not that the space remains empty, there's nothing there, it's just that lots of little, small g-gods slide in for us, and good things become ultimate things, and they capture our hearts, and they capture our attentions. Martin Luther put it, we, we are, are from birth, our hearts are little, idol factories." And I think we've seen something of that over the past few weeks in Judges, and we see it this week as well. It's there again in verse 6 of chapter 10. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're familiar with that. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aaron, the gods of Sidon, the gods of the Anamites, and the gods of the Philistines. Well, I'm going to linger here for a bit because I think getting to grips with this idea is hugely contemporary and actually really good for us to help us understand ourselves and our own tendencies. So we've come across the Baals and the Asterisks already there, the um, native Canaanite gods. You might remember them from previous weeks. But now if you do verse 6, if you do the geography of verse 6, it's almost like it as a clock. So we're working our way around the clock. At 10.30, which I think is there for you, at 10.30 we have the gods of Aram to the northwest. Then at 12 o'clock we have the gods of Sion to the north. At 3pm over here we have Ammon and Moab to the east, and then down the bottom in the south we've got the Philistines at 6pm. And actually if you know judges, you will know that we've met these folk already. We've had them in previous weeks. So Othniel, he dealt with Aram. Ehud, he saw off Moab and Ammon, Shamgar dealt with the Philistines, and Deborah and Barak, she dealt with the Canaanites, Later well, the Canaanites. Which is an interesting thing, because it's really it's a way of saying whenever Israel worshipped the idols of a nation, a neighbouring nation, that nation ends up oppressing them. They ran after their gods, and very soon their gods were in charge of Israel. So here's the first point, if you're a note-taker, and I've not got points on the screen, that's my fault, I'm sorry. So the first point are, our, our idols end up enslaving us. Our idols end up enslaving us. And it's been the case week after week after week. And they keep going back to them. They keep going back. Just this time we've got the Ammonites and the Philistines in the mix as well. Now think about it, it feels wrong, we shouldn't do that. Surely we think, well if you know you're being enslaved by these idols, then you will see the light, you will see the gods of the nations are not good for you. And what do you do? You will turn away from them, will you?
0: you? will stop. You will run from them. But what do they do? They run to them.
1: Because idolatry leads to slavery, they're back worshipping the idols again this morning. Again and again. In chapter 3, the Ammonites had oppressed them and beaten them up. But what are Israel doing now? they're serving them again. Even though there was pain and there was misery and there was heartache, they're at it again. And why does this matter? It matters because it teaches us something about our human hearts, the nature of our hearts, the nature of worship. And it's easy to kind of look down our noses and touch them and call them primitive and a bit silly, but don't we do that? Well, don't we think, well, that might, be, it didn't satisfy me that time, but maybe i have another go, get a bit more of it, and then I will be satisfied. Then my heart will be happy. If just get m- a bit more of that thing, then I'll be okay. If I just had a bit more money, you know, then, I mean, it not got an idea, of course, but if I just had a bit more, a little bit, then I'm sure that would make life a bit easier and I would find comfort and I would find joy. And, and how much is enough to have? Just a little bit more. Or family. is complicated, isn't it? If I just had a slightly better marriage or slightly nicer kids, then I would be happy. But family is not made to be worshipped. Family is not the answer. Family is not what it's about. It never quite works. It's never quite enough. And God's people go back to the same idols again and again and again, not learning the lesson. And we get idols, and but they're a mirror for us. And we thought they would bring life and freedom, and they end up just bringing slavery impression. and oppression. And then it's striking: what does God do in verse seven for His wayward people? Who keep running after their hearts. What does he do in verse 7? He gives them what they want. He gives them over to the things they've been longing for. He became angry with them. So he's got a long fuse, but he still has a fuse. He he became angry with them, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Do you want the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites? Okay, Off you go.
0: They are all yours. And you are all theirs, he says. Maybe you remember the thought of Romans 1, the similar thing goes on. At times, God hands his people
1: over to the thing that they want. He gives them, he gives us our desires. Which means the judgment for idolatry,
0: at times, is idolatry. And it doesn't take much, does it, to see that it applies for us.
1: Maybe it's a few thousand years later, but the human heart has not changed. We we still worship, we still run after the things that we think will promise us life, that they will give us joy and salvation and peace and security and comfort. And and we scrimp and we save and we hustle and we stress just for a bit more money, but it's never quite enough. It's always elusive. We grab it and it's gone. And it always begins to feel like, Actually, I'm not so much in charge anymore, it's my, the money that's in charge, my desire for money is in charge and it shakes me, it, it shakes my heart. Or we can just pile on the hours, because then we can get a promotion, and with the promotion might come like, um, security, or control, or, or goals achieved, or <coughs> my parents will be proud of me, or whatever it is. And maybe you get the promotion, but you don't quite feel like security or control, it almost feels like the job is in charge and not you. Or whatever it is. Time at the gym. Safety. That's an interesting one for our day. Mm. Or health. Or the curation of an identity on social media. Or the grades as we
0: study. Or the ladder at work or whatever it is. And of course, we are the one calling the shots, aren't we? I
1: mean, I'm in charge here. Yeah? And then sometimes it feels like we're not. And actually, we thought we were free, but maybe we're not so free. And our hearts are running after these things again. And I, I thought I dealt with that last year, but it's back again. You see, obviously with the
0: the alcoholic, the drug addicts. I think you see it with these things. I think phones. I mean, you don't believe me. Try and put it down.
1: Leave it alone on the day off. Don't touch it. And you feel yourself twitchy about. I can to check the email. Just going to check everyone's message. Me. Well, I wonder if they're a bit of a kind of graphic illustration of what some of this looks like in our hearts. For many you, I don't know, comfort or acceptance or security or power or control or something, and our hearts chase after them, and eventually just have them for a little bit, and then we end up
0: being given over to them. And we thought we were running after them, but it turns out they grabbed up on us. Those people, once again, running after the idols that didn't satisfy last time.
1: It's striking to me, as well, if you look down, that God doesn't rescue them straight away. They cry out in verse 10, but it's not until verse 16, actually, that help comes. And it seems as if, it seems as if initially they were sorry for the outworking of their sin. They were sorry for the consequences of their sin and their rebellion, the pain, the frustration, the slavery. They're sorry for that. But actually not for the actual sin, not for the way in which it's affected God in one sense.
0: And when they finally get that, then finally the Lord steps in, and he rescues them. So that's the first point, we've zoomed in, we are the red kite that's zoomed in, proverbially,
1: and we've seen something of the kind of mess and the predicament that once again God's people have got themselves into. These hearts that worship run after the wrong things. Let's go back up and zoom in again on our judge. Um, The judge for the day, he's the rescuer that God sends. is is not much to look at. He's not our standard rescuer. In fact, as you move your way through judges, it gets more and more chaotic. I think the interesting thing is that God seems to prepare and raise up the right kind of judge for the right moment. Even if he's messy, even if he's and morally ambiguous. So if our first point is something to do with idols and up enslaving us, the second one is God prepares his people for the tasks he calls them to. So what about Jephthah? Let me read from 11 one to 6. Let me read it again, see if you can I'll latch on to a few key points about him. Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Okay, what do we see of Jephthah? He's in the spotlight, he's an interesting one, he's damaged. He comes from a broken family, he's a a bandit it seems. We we don't even know his mum's name. She was a prostitute, and so his half-brothers don't want anything to do with Jephthah. They don't want him to get his inheritance, or any inheritance,
0: and so they get rid of him. They reject him, he's unwanted. There are with Joseph and Genesis, He's
1: driven away, cast out like a criminal. But he seems to find a new family, and his new family seems to be a gang of scoundrels. And I think he seems to be the boss. He's some kind of crime lord, basically. He is not the kind of person you might expect God to raise up as a judge for his people.
0: And so, when the elders of the people come knocking on his door, asking for his help, he's doubtful.
1: He's doubtful because they only really want him because he's a mighty warrior. Why are you asking me, I mean, he's, hey, maybe we should try Jephthah, but we burn our bridges, No, let's go anyway. And they do. They're in a spot of bother with the Ammonites, and so he's persuaded to come and help them. And to that, he's not just a military leader. And the Lord will use to deliver them. But if he succeeds, he will rule them long term. So he's kind of back into the family again, back into the people. And it's striking, look, this Jephthah does start off pretty well, I think. It's a bit surprising. We might have expected him to be, proverbially, your guns are blazing. Comes in, trigger happy, ready for the fight. Come on, guys, let's be having you. Um, the mighty warrior, verse 1. But it's striking. Instead, he seeks a peaceful resolution to begin seems to be wiser than we think. He has this conversation with the king of Ammon, and he's got a three-pronged argument that I mean, he tries on him. He appeals to him, historically, theologically, and legally. So historically is from 15 to 22. Essentially the argument is, Israel won this land by contest from the Amorites. It never belonged to the Ammonites. They have no historical right over this land. And so please would you leave. That's historically, theologically. I wonder if his reasoning is a bit questionable. But in 23 to 24, he says, God has given us this portion of land. It belongs to us. It's not for And then legally, in 25 to 27, he says, There's a precedent here. The king of Moab didn't attack Israel, neither did the Ammonite ancestors. So why would you be doing this now? He tries to persuade him not to come and fight. Mm-hmm. Let's just pause there, because Jephthah. I think it's, it's not simply that the Lord made the most of a messy situation, he didn't just kind of raise up Jephthah despite his backgrounds. but I wonder actually if it's more that he is prepared for this role, he is prepared through his messy backgrounds to be the kind of judge that the people need at this point. Does that mean that it was wrong for the brothers to disown him and get rid of him? Yes. Just as with Joseph. Does that mean that the Lord can still be sovereign and at work in his plans and purposes, raising up the right judge for the right time? Yes.
0: Just like Joseph. It was wrong, but he is the right guy. I was reflecting this week. I think if I was to
1: make a film on Jeffla, i have got a good film. Um, I reckon you would start in the middle here. So you would start in the middle of the kind of him trying to persuade the king not to fight him trying to he looking kind of muscly and warrior-like, um, but trying to persuade the king, we don't need this, we don't need this. And then he would kind of go back to his backstory. You know how they start off in the middle and then go back? You would me, yeah. And you show what came before as to why he is the guy for the job, what's prepared him, what is
0: happening now.
1: And he seems to be like a, a, a perceptive negotiator. He's not looking for a fight, as far as I can tell. Maybe he recognises from experience the cost of conflict. But as we'll see in the battle, he is exceptional. You can't imagine his brothers who have lived a life of relative luxury to be anything like as useful as him at this point. It seems to be why the elders have come to him, to write, the right guy for the right moments. And just reflecting on that, it strikes me that's a real encouragement. One person put it to me recently, the Lord wastes nothing. Nothing. We probably would put it like this, but maybe when we're fearful, fearful that the Lord has taken his eye off the ball, that maybe he's not quite got it as we thought he did. Maybe we're questioning, Well, is there a plan in this mess? And everything feels a bit random and a bit purposeless, and whatever it is, oh, I've got COVID again, or we're having to isolate again, or the kids are lost school again,
0: or I thought we were over this Lord, come on. It just strikes me we can know that he is at work. He wastes nothing. It seems
1: to me he prepared Jephthah for this role through hardship, through difficult times, through sin, even. Some of you will know I've been on this was interesting on Friday. I've been involved um, for the last year or so in helping with a, a podcast um, talking to church planters around Europe every um, Few weeks we have a few hours talking to some extraordinary people from different places around Europe, and planting churches, different stories. And on Friday, just gone, and this was amazing. Interest, we had an American church planting family who came and spoke and um, talked about their story. and They were planning to plant in West Africa, they felt a the call from the Lord to go and help reach out to people in West Africa where there's no gospel witness, no Bible, at and this. Uh, French-speaking is the majority area, so they went to France for two years to learn the language. And then they moved to West Africa, and um, the young family, two kids, and their youngest was 18 months. Um, daughter, who became really ill with a seizure, um, and was really quite poorly um, when stopped for 10 minutes, that kind of thing. <laughs> They ended up heading back to the States for treatment, trying to work out what to do. Um, their daughter now has chronic kidney failure, can't go anywhere particularly remote, they can't go back to West Africa. The of being. And to cut a long story short, they ended up in France seeking to plant a church, because they spent two years <coughs> in France to learn the language, and then six months in African culture um, before they had to move back to the States. And so the Lord seems to have got this situation here, and this situation in his sovereignty put them in a the perfect place, um, reaching displaced Africans in Strasbourg.
0: And you think the Lord wastes nothing.
1: Not how we can do it, isn't it? But actually he has been at work all the way and they are they doing amazing work. He is using them powerfully. Um, the dad said this. He says, Well, I have no idea why God has chosen this path for us. I see that the only only this path could have equipped us to reach these
0: people with the gospel in France. The, so, the Lord wastes nothing. I'd say
1: it's not usually as clear as that as to why he's doing what he's doing. Sometimes we get that glimpse, and that's a joy, but often it's not the situation. Sometimes it's as if you're sat on the train, going this way, with your back facing forwards, and you look back over the landscape, opening up behind you, and you can see some of what's going on. You see some of his plans and his purposes. You see how he's preparing you for the things that he's called you to your backgrounds, your experiences, your strains and your stresses, your messes and your burdens, and even your pain and your suffering, your frustrations. But he wears nothing. Isn't it striking how he prepares Jephthah through a difficult childhood, preparing him to be the judge they need is. I take it he's preparing me for the task that he's called us to. And when
0: you look at your life and think, well,
1: we've really got this this plan sorted, because it doesn't quite feel like it. Things haven't quite worked out. It's not really the way it was meant to be, actually. This wasn't my idea. Don't worry,
0: keep going. Trust me, I've got you. Yes, it might be hard. Yes, it might happen. But this is all part of my plan. So here we have Jephthah. And at this point, it kind of feels okay. And then our third zooming
1: in, is you see him making an awful decision. Awful decision. He prepares his people for the task, second point, third one, something like our world shapes our view of God more than we think. Our world shapes our view of God more than we think. He makes what we might simply call a stupid Wow. Let's not make it look nicer than it is. Pick it up in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house, to meet when I return in triumph, from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And if only he had stopped at verse 29. You see, God equips him for what he's called into. The spirit of the Lord comes on him. Under the old covenant before Jesus, God's spirit is usually poured out on specific people at specific times for specific tasks. Okay, he equips them. He provides what his people need and he always has done, and he always will. do. He helps us so we can be faithful to him.
0: And so verse 29 is enough. But then verse 30, stupid round. Why does he do it? Huh? We don't really know. The assumption is he is expecting an animal to
1: come out of his front door. Although that's weird. Why would there be animals in the house? People don't know. A <coughs> slave, even? Not sure. But then, after the successful battle, he arrives home. It's the film of Jethro's life, and it's almost inevitable, isn't it? You read verse 30, and you think,
0: Is that that one? That's not going to work out well. You can feel it coming. And his only daughter walks out the door. And it's horrific. And we don't know why he did it. The commentaries will say the most likely
1: explanation, I think this is probably true, is that his view of God has more to do with a kind of pagan understanding of what God is like, or the nations around that we will be happy with. This kind of tit-for-tat thing, I do this for you, Lord, and you do this for me. This works righteousness religion. His understanding of who God is has been shaped by the world, rather than shaped by how God has revealed himself to his people. It's kind of absorbed his understanding of who God is, through the nations around. A pagan works righteousness and moral code. Deuteronomy 12:31 says that human sacrifice, which was so common at the time, but it's detestable and something the Lord hates.
0: And yet, Jephthah follows through on his vow. It's a blot, isn't it? Not how we wanted the story to finish. There
1: are different ways that we could apply it. We could talk about the danger of careless words. There may be something worth reflecting on that. Be careful of what we say. Be careful that the words that we speak reflect our God. I was going to focus on one idea then. This idea of works righteousness. It seems to me our hearts constantly veer towards it. It is the car with the tracking off. It's the shopping trolley that goes this way and that. Our hearts veer towards the work and the, of the whole time, and it's almost a daily discipline to move us back towards grace again. Ah, that is not how God relates to me. He relates to me in grace. And your works, us right is so common. You put the coins in, and out come the goodies. You do the praying, and out comes what you want. My God, if I do a quiet time for 45 minutes this morning, please can I have this? Or please can this go on? Or please can I get this raise of work or he becomes almost like a heavenly and if we work him hard enough? Then we'll get out. You'll reluctant to give us what
0: we're after. Press the right buttons, out pops the goodies. And that's grace. As he relates to you by grace.
1: You are joined to him because you are joined to Jesus and so he loves you. You have a heavenly father who is generous and good and kind.
0: <clears throat> you don't need to and you can't earn his favour. But there's something hardwired in us. What is the default setting of our hearts is towards this
1: idea of works well, righteousness. I think it just me. Okay, the few
0: shakes, thank
1: you. To myself, that's fine.
0: We don't like grace, do we? It challenges
1: our pride. It makes us feel like we owe something. It makes us feel um, weak or ashamed. We were talking earlier with the Londoners this week. It's much, much easier to, to
0: help people than to ask for help from people. We don't like grace. Our God is
1: kind to us and he is committed to us. And he loves us, and we don't need to earn it, or press
0: the right buttons, or do the right things. He we relates to us by grace. And our danger is almost by osmosis, or just this default heart
1: setting, that we keep veering towards, I must do this to get this.
0: If I do these things, then I'll get what I want. And the world kind of seeps into our understanding of who God is, rather than from his word. Friends, he loves us.
1: That seems to be, I think, what Jethler got wrong. He he thought he had to make vows and earn something and do something and tick the boxes and press the buttons, and then he would get success. But in verse 29, God had already given him his spirit, he had already equipped
0: him for the task. He didn't need verse 30. You didn't need to make it better. Let's pray. Let's pray to our God of grace. There are so many things in this passage for us to,
1: to chew over and reflect upon. We thank you.
0: Thank you that you are a God of grace. Thank you that you are our Father in heaven who loves us, who is kind, who is generous, and whom we don't need to seek to impress or control, but oh Lord, you give us what we need. Help us when our hearts to do veer towards seeking to earn things. Help us daily to remember that you are our God of grace. Would that be a corrective? Well, we're sorry for when our hearts run after other things like the Israelites. We're sorry for
1: thinking if we just have a bit more of this thing, then I will get what I need or want or find
0: salvation or joy or satisfaction. Lord, wake us up. I thank you too for this. This is all of you preparing Jephthah for, for what you need to do. Maybe nothing is wasted in your plans and purposes, in your economy. You'll shake us. Draw us back to yourself. Captivate us afresh with the truth of the gospel. Remind us how much he loves, and we thank you for Jesus, thank you for the Monsens. again, shows us our a perfect Saviour. He's not tainted by sin and foolishness, he's done it for himself. He doesn't make stupid vows. Thank you, Jesus.